everyone, welcome to Pit Stops to Podium, the Red Partners podcast, where we talk to execs who competed in one, taking their companies from high growth to high scale. My name is Brendan Tollison. I serve as the co-founder and CEO of Red Partners, and I'm delighted to have with me today, Dale Dupree, for this episode of Pit Stops to Podium. Welcome, Dale. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you, Dale. And for those that may not know who Dale is, Dale's a founder and CSO of Sales Rebellion. Um, and Dale, this is your opportunity to give the elevator pitch on Sales Rebellion and also how you came up with the idea to, to bring this to life. So what, what's your past experience look like? Sure, yeah. Sales Rebellion was founded from 13 years of selling the dreaded copy machine in the B2B space. <laughs> so I actually started in the music industry and toured on a band, signed to a major record label, and was in a very creative space and evolved from that directly into copier sales and B2B. (laughs) And so I was influenced essentially a little bit differently from the perspective of the way that I get in. It wasn't out of college. It wasn't the traditional way to get into sales, even though there really is no traditional way. If we're being honest, it was probably one of the weirdest routes that I could have potentially ever taken. And I, even in my head at some point said, you know, I'll probably only be here for a couple of years. Uh, 13 years later, (laughs) I was uh, one of the top producers inside of the industry, not just from the perspective of like the companies, the two companies I represented, but also those recognized by manufacturers uh, that were global, uh, publicly traded organizations. And I recognized through the process of selling a commodity box and the way that the transaction behind a copier typically works that I had something a little bit differently than most people, uh, where we focus more on creative efforts. We focus more on people. We focus less on product. We focus more on not just the quote unquote value that we bring to the table, but what other people perceive as actual value and, and will buy into as a fix for their organization outside of just, again, a plain box that prints and copies and scans. So because of those feats, I sat back and said, we could probably teach this to a lot of different people. And bada bing, what do you know? The Sales Rebellion was born in 2019. Uh, actually just hit our four-year anniversary last month. Oh, congrats. Well, yeah, I think to your point, if you're selling a commodity, then it requires you to be a little bit more creative than relying on that on that product or service. So uh, I'm excited to unpack a little bit more of those lessons that you've learned in terms of how to be successful, in, regardless of market, but especially when you, have, you feel like you have a commodity-based product. But you mentioned something about um, you know music career, and that's a good segue into fun facts about our guests. So Dale, um, let, let's unpack that a little bit more in terms of what you were doing. What kind of music were you a part of? I don't think anybody ever grows up just to say it or, or starts as a child looking at the future of what it will be to to grow up and to become an adult and says, I want to be a copier salesperson. <laughs> so really, the story just has to start somewhere. And that's where it starts is that I was a dreamer. And I believe that the most important thing to me is what I should say instead of what I believe. It was this idea of being able to meet people where they are, entertain them, have a good time, and ultimately create some type of impact on their life. Now, I'm not going to say that as a kid that I was had these dreams of like impacting people on a level that I do as an adult, but I will say that music changed my life. And because it changed my life, I knew that it was something I wanted to do and to give to other people as well, too, to hopefully change theirs, whether that be the lyrics to a song or the, the melody itself, you know, whatever the case, whatever somebody could connect with. 
that was really where my dreams were. And so at 17 years old, I took a band that I'd been playing in for a couple of years. We set up our own 52-day tour. We ran it. And when we got home, it was like Christmas. There were so many record label opportunities and offers that it was just like a no-brainer for me to do anything else with my life. To include college, I skipped college. I went right into basically working for myself, playing in a band. Wow. And uh, what was your, were you instrument vocals? What was your flavor choice? Staying in the band, but definitely I dabbled in all the instruments. So I played something, something on pretty much everything. Was I good at it? Uh, you know, <laughs> no, nah, I mean, like I was okay at guitars and drums, and but mostly just had this like burning desire and passion to be a musician and to kind of understand the craft ultimately instead of being very niche into just one thing. And so I, I liked picking around at everything and trying to make a sound and create songs. And so for the most part, for the three albums that we have, I, I wrote everything with one other guy. Hmm. What's the pinnacle of your music career? Probably when we stopped, to be quite frank with you, I, I, I was at kind of the top of my game and my guitar player, we were shooting our music video for Warner Brothers Music Group and my guitar player was late and it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, oh great, you know, here's this and <laughs> this consistent thing inside of something like music. It's a stereotype and it's also the truth, you know, that there's a lackadaisical mindset and I was very entrepreneurial so I was getting pretty heated over it and then I finally got a call from, from the individual member and he said, hey, I'm three days sober from heroin and I, I, uh, that's like, that's it. Like I can't make it. And it was kind of a gut punch and a shock, you know, to the system to an extent. And, um, you know, like it, it was something that changed the perspective entirely around my music career altogether. And then, you know, there was other instances that occurred uh, ultimately that, that drove me at that point to basically just like call the whole thing off at the end of the day. But it, it helped me to really understand like what's actually important in life. Like I could have kept that band alive, but what was the point? And ultimately, the, the mission that we, we set out to achieve was not being fulfilled. If, if anything, we were falling victim to the industry and it was time to move on. Well, that's, um, that's a powerful story. I mean, look, it's when you find your identity in something and to be able to say, hey, that's not ultimately what I'm here for and what I believe in, um, that's not easy to, to walk away from. Um, so kudos to you for doing that. And uh, it's always fun to just get to hear people's stories, uh, even in snapshots. So, so thanks for being willing to do that. Um, so you, you're in music, you get in the copier business, you start your own sales rebellion to give kind of, Hey, here's some tips, tricks, tri tips, tricks, best practices for how to sell. And so let's dive into that. Cause you have this whole concept around, you know, selling with authenticity, uh, and which sounds nice, but oftentimes people are fearful of doing that. So, uh, let's start first when we think about authenticity, how does that translate into the voice that someone uses when they're selling? So like, let's empower our, our listeners with some tips on that side. Yeah, if I were to say how we tie in an authentic seller to the rebellion based on action itself around things like tone, I think ultimately actually where we would start is the words that we say. There's a lot of studies out there. There's a really popular one that shows body language, tonality, and then the words we say as the study of what communicates the best body language being number one, tonality being number two, and the words we say being the third. And what's funny is the words we say is like less than 10%. 
And, hmm. and what, I, what I find interesting about that study is, is that most sales traders teach it as, yeah, so talk is, is the least amount possible right inside of an interaction. But really what that study tells us is that words are extremely important and that if we don't use the right words and ultimately we say things that don't connect necessarily with the person that we seek to serve, they're not going to hear it. And they're not going to be listening, then ultimately, like your body language and your tone aren't going to close the sale. I'm sorry to say it, sellers, but where we tie back in that authenticity is to say that ultimately we need to be very genuine and very blunt people as sales individuals. That slowing our pace as part of those techniques is important. That listening more than we speak, of course, we believe that to be important, but people can talk about this stuff all day long. Actually acting on it and getting it done is a completely different story. Like I'd love to sit in on half of the influencers meetings out there that say that they listen more than they talk. I guarantee you most of them talk just as much as they listen. And ultimately, sometimes that's what a meeting calls for. That's that's what the moment calls for as well too, to have a great conversation with somebody where you do some talking just the same, especially if as a seller, you're somebody that's more extroverted as an example. And the person you're speaking with just juices off that. They enjoy that. They're not necessarily there to speak a whole bunch in the first place. So I think it's more or less a, a complicated and complex thought and question. But if you start with this concept of, well, what words do we use on a cold call, on a first appointment, on a discovery, on a close? What are we saying? Are we... Are we how direct are we being? Are we being direct in a way that moves the person that's listening instead of just causing them to read some words, send it up to the brain that says, this person's trying to sell you something, and then they move on with a not interested, right? Or are we doing things that are compelling that create moments for individuals that feel more like an experience than they do just a juncture in the road meeting a robot for the first time? <laughs> yeah, I like that. And it's, you know, especially, I mean, look, most, well, I think things are changing, but with a post-COVID world, I mean, body language is even more and more important. Like you don't have <laughs> your voice to rely upon for like a call or an email. Like you are looking at that person. Uh, and so I talked to our team a lot about the body language and making sure you understand what you're doing, but also reading the room. Um, so that was, you talk about body language, tonality, and then the words you use. And to your point, it's fewer words, but those words mean more. Um, so what are some... Let's, let's use that discovery call to your point or close each, whichever one you want on the bookends of discovery or close. Um, what are some of those words that our audience should be aware of that you find to be pretty powerful or effective? So I'll, I'll answer it like this, that, that, how are we crafting the message in the first place, right? Are we trying to tell stories? Are we trying to create engagement with the person that we're speaking with? Are we trying to just like gather information so that we can continue to qualify them and, you know, like deeper into our system? Like, so now we've qualified them. Now we're qualifying them for a specific project or product or now a specific price. Like we need to get rid of that garbage altogether, in my opinion. The thought process for me that makes the most sense is more of an adaptive perseverance mindset and activity to where like when I'm sitting with somebody that I know that, A, this call is going to be different than the last one, no matter how I spend it, because I'm sitting with a unique individual that it's going to hear me different. They're going to speak differently. And even if they have some of the same needs of you know, people that we've helped in the past or people that I've worked with in the past, I have to treat this very uniquely. I have to understand it better than I did the last time. Even if in my head I'm going, oh, I've been through this before. I have to literally detach myself from those moments of thinking that I know everything and continue to be an extremely curious person. So 
for the most part, I think all words that are used inside of things like a discovery call have to be in a question format. Like if you don't ask 50 questions in a discovery call um, and make, you know, less than 10 statements, then I don't think it's a good discovery call, just being honest. And you know, there's not really much that you need to say ultimately in a discovery call. But if we ask questions like, what's your budget, right? As opposed to, is this something you think that you can afford? much different perspective mindset and delivery in those moments. It allows somebody to feel emotional context in that question instead of just hear, you know, a slated uh, or a uh, boxed question that gets a slated answer, right? So if we're mindful about the way that we deliver things and instead of saying something like, how long have you been with the company? You know, asking questions more like, what do you, uh, so for you, like what's uh, the average tenure at an organization, the organizations that you've, you've been at? up until this point. Now I'm asking for a story. I'm asking for a little bit of a deeper understanding of this person. And this someone said, and I'm saying like, I've been here for five years. They're probably going to say something like, well, I've been with a couple companies and I've been with them pretty long term, 10 a piece. And so now I also understand like diligently through the way that I'm using words and asking and phrasing questions more to this person, because now I, I understand that they're a very loyal human and that I I might not know all the details behind those five years or 10 years per company, right? But I do know that like nothing is ever a peachy keen inside of life. And so there's got to have been problems and issues and things that they had to overcome and persevere through to stick out for, for that amount of time. So really the concept here is thinking deeply about the way that we ask questions and not in a way that probes people, but ultimately allows them to release and share, which is the way that a conversation evolves, you know, effectively into something that be, is is a sale without you having to sell anything. Where ultimately the person on the other side says, "I'm into this. I buy. I'll buy into this all day." Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, the whole to me, it's not curiosity. Like curiosity is not the end goal. Uh, curiosity is a way to uncover those different data points that you can then connect for that storytelling perspective and ultimately understand the why behind the what. So why are they actually looking at what you're providing so that you can connect those dots for them and to be their true like champion or ally to get that deal across the line. Um, let's transition Dale into another topic. And that's, you know, look, I think a lot of salespeople fall into the trap of people policing. Uh, and I think you have a pretty unique perspective on <laughs> how we should think about that. Um, in terms of, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and so help our understand, like our audience understand that desire for approval and, and how do they understand that's a good thing or a bad thing and how they fight against it? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> this one is interesting, right? It, we, we as salespeople typically are charismatic. That's what makes us successful and and likable to an extent. It's what makes us successful. But it doesn't mean that everybody likes me doesn't mean that everybody thinks I'm charismatic either. In some instances, some of my best customers are people that didn't like me necessarily when I first met them. And I think that 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 emotion is powerful because if I can build trust and credibility in the midst of that, that I have a person that says, I might like not like the way this dude rolls, but that's because he's not coddling me. And, and that ultimately he's telling the truth and being very genuine. And because of that, I can trust this guy. And, and again, like it's all about life experiences. The things that we don't think about as sellers or in general inside of our business walk is we don't think about the past of people. What's defined them to this moment? And most of the time we just don't care, right? Like, well, it doesn't affect me. I don't care. I'm here in this business environment with this person. Let's strictly stick to business. Well, if I don't understand somebody on a deeper level to any capacity, then how the hell am I supposed to sell them this million dollar product without you know, having to fiercely fight on price and all the other things ultimately that 
that happens to sellers and that and throughout that process. So I can be accommodating to people, I can be charismatic to people, but that's not the truth. And the truth is is blunt. It's honest. It's, and and blunt honesty is something that most people don't get in their lives. So to have that by with some strange person <laughs> that's ultimately trying to sell them something is a it's a rare thing. And ultimately it it also is something that people can be motivated by because they say I've bought a copy machine in the past and been promised the world and been let down tremendously. And this happens in most cases, in most B2B you know, instances when they buy things like office equipment. And because I understood that that was one of the kind of blanket pains that people have across the board is that there's, there's a level of distrust because someone said something and it never happened to some capacity at some point that my blunt honesty will literally steamroll my competition, even if I'm thousands of dollars more you know, on a monthly or annual basis to buy my, my thing because this person feels differently toward me. So I I think us as sellers, we shouldn't be out trying to, quote unquote, make new friends as much as we should be out trying to earn trust and credibility from the people that we seek to serve because that develops a very unique type of relationship that lasts a lot longer than just the transaction. I like that. That perspective of not making friends but earning the trust. Uh, and if I heard you right, the, the way that the way that you've experienced earning trust is through that, um, I don't call it radical candor, but it's being open and honest with that prospect or customer, even if it comes at the detriment of you in the short term. Yeah, it's all about the long game, right? So if I if I if there's a deal going down and it's got you know 90 days before the sale. Uh, a lot of sellers would see that, especially in the copier space or some kind of commodity space. They would see that and they'd go, oh, this is part of my 90-day funnel. Me, I'd look at that and be like, <laughs> cool, I've got a thousand other deals that I'll be working for the next two or three years. So this one just is like kind of a cherry if I win it. And because of that, I'm detached from that immediate outcome and I'm thinking long-term. So that if I lose the deal because it happens in 90 days, I'm setting myself up for great success when that con- when that contract expires and I get a second go at it, especially from a long-term perspective because that's where, see, a lot of people don't understand that that's where most, most wealth is found. And we as salespeople, if we're not out doing sales because we we don't want to make or if we're out doing sales i should say because we don't want to make money then we should just go get a desk job and you know take a salary ultimately because salespeople have to be motivated by the the monetary reward to an extent not a big money is everything guy but i am i'm more of a purpose guy but at the same time i realized that if, if I hadn't made the kind of money that I did and created the kind of success that I did, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I've been able to do so far in my life and have the kind of flexibility that I've had. So realistically, we have to remember that if I have this mindset of ultimately building my wealth generationally or from a legacy perspective, as opposed to just this one sale that could maybe pay me $10,000, I'm going to lose in, inside of my sales career at the end of the day. I'm going to have to spend 40 years in it, you know, playing the game over and over again. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in in that perspective of how do we do something with a bigger picture perspective in mind to reach an ultimate goal that we desire to have instead of just like what the year's quota looks like. How do you, and I don't disagree with that. I think it's a really good perspective to have uh, in terms of purpose over a uh, paycheck. Um, but for our audience that's listening, that says, hey, that's great but I do have like a 90 day quota uh, or I have a number that I have to manage for my team. Like how do you balance the realities of, I can't have any of those things unless I do hit these numbers. So how do I balance? Like I do need that sale, 
but I also am being mindful that this relationship long-term is what's best for the business and what's best for me. I would say that that person lives in a scarcity mindset because if anybody ever says, I need this sale, then they're lying to themselves. They probably don't have a big enough pipeline, as a matter of fact, in most cases. So like if I looked at my average pipeline, like I sold anywhere between seven and nine deals uh, a month. And like from the perspective, and those are all net new businesses, right? So not including like any kind of like upgraded contracts. So if I think about that deeply, then I, from, from my perspective, I can say, well, I had to have at least 15, 20 deals working at a time because of that ultimately. And my close rate was somewhere like my success rate from start to finish with the deal was somewhere in the 65, 70% range when you really like put it all together and started to, to understand like the analytics of it. And that, and what really gets spelled out there is my abundance mindset. So that abundance mindset is really this bigger picture perspective of like, okay, I get this 90 day deal coming in, but I don't need it because I got enough deals working right now. So so right. there is a, like you have to get to that point ultimately. So I, I do understand a rep when they're Klein and nine and the quota every month and trying really hard to build what it is that they're doing. And they're only a year, maybe two years in. But if I could speak to every rep in that moment and from that perspective and, and tell them like, hey, I was in the same place. And then I was making half a million dollars a year selling copy machines. Like if I could have that moment with those reps to help them to understand that it's very critical that the decisions you make today be in abundance and not in scarcity then that will also help them to win those deals because they'll detach from the ultimate outcome of those 90 days and they'll do what's right, not just for themselves or the customer, but ultimately for the glory of sales and what it is that we're trying to build for the future of sales instead of it being this scummy, do whatever it takes to get wherever you need to go profession, getting it back to its roots of serving others. I like it. Abundance over scarcity mindset. That's really good. Well, Dale, uh, as we wrap up, um, what, what is the next step that our audience could take to, to learn more about uh, Sales Rebellion or content that you create? What's that step they can take? Yeah, a great place to go to is salesrebellion.com to just learn about what we're doing, where we're at, what industries we serve, products we offer, blah, blah, blah. We got a great Slack channel um, as well, too, full of sellers. It's free to get in there. Uh, but if they want content, if people that are listening want to just intake, you know, a daily dose of rebellion, any of the social platforms are great. Uh, mine in particular, I post daily on it, linkedin.com backslash IN backslash copier warrior, just search Dale Dupree. And then all of our social sites are either at Dale Rebel Leader or at Sales Rebellion. Come join the movement. All right, Dale, really appreciate the insights on authenticity in, in a sales context. Um, have a great day and let's stay in touch. Appreciate you, man.